0: Hello and welcome to this third N4D podcast. Very warm welcome to all our listeners. I'm Carmel Dolan and I'm joined by Jeremy Shohan. Do you want to say hello,
1: Jeremy? Hello, everyone
0: who's sitting in London. I'm sitting in the woods in the UK. Chris, do you want to say, Chris Leather, do you want to say hello, Chris?
2: Hello, everybody. Uh, And I am currently
0: in Rio de Janeiro. Yeah, he's showing off, but that's okay. We'll forgive him. Uh, It's our great pleasure uh, to introduce our guest for this conversation on this podcast, uh, Karima El Hadar, who wears Many hats, uh, sitting in Yemen, but also traveling. Karima is the planning and liaison specialist for the Scaling Up Nutrition Secretariat in Yemen. So Scaling Up Nutrition, sometimes we use the acronym SUN. So if it it, give us if you hear that acronym during this conversation. And Karima works within the secretariat in the Ministry of Planning, and international cooperation, a really important ministry that coordinates across all the different actors in Yemen around nutrition and other matters as well. Karima is also the Sun Movement Executive Committee member and has been for a number of years. And as if she isn't busy enough, she is also the Assistant National Food Systems Convener. So, Karima has a very busy life, and we're so happy to have this opportunity to chat with you, Karima. Uh, Perhaps, though, before doing that, I just want to set a little bit of context for our listeners, who will be aware that our last podcast, number two, was recorded when we were all together, including with Karima, in Amman, Jordan, which was a bringing together of Yemeni national actors around nutrition so it was the first convening of the whole of Yemen uh, to discuss nutrition issues across Yemen and that podcast was with Habib Meir from the G7 Plus Secretariat. Yemen is part of the G7 Plus and some of the issues that came out of that podcast we'll be picking up on during today's conversation as well. So warm welcome Karima I'm going to let you say hello to the listeners and then I'm going to ask Chris just to very briefly outline for us how did we end up meeting Karima and um, how long has that been? It feels like it's been quite a while. So Karima, do you want to say hello? And then Chris, would you like just to say a few words about how we arrived at this happy place and privilege of working with Karima uh, over the last couple of years?
3: Yeah, thank you so much um, N4D team and um, hello everyone, this is Karim Al-Hada and and thank you for having me today. Great pleasure.
0: Chris, do you want to just remind us and just say something for our listeners about how we ended up as N4D working within the Yemen context and particularly with Karima?
2: Sure. As we discussed between the three of us in our first podcast... um, A key priority for us as N4D is working with national governments, working at the country level with national governments and uh, humanitarian and development partners at a country level. And really, the, the work that we've been doing in Yemen is... Perhaps the, the the most significant, the most important piece of country level work since we started N4D about three years ago. And it's been truly fascinating to be working on a long-term basis with Karima uh, and with other members of the Sun Yemen Secretariat uh, and also other actors in Yemen. Um and we got to we got involved in this on the back of work. We were doing with one of the largest national NGOs in Yemen, building Foundation for Development, BFD, back in 2021. And Kamel, uh, Jeremy, it was yourselves that were really leading that work. Um, we were requested to provide technical support to BFD uh, via the nutrition Pasta because BFD were wanting to develop their multi-sectoral uh, nutrition portfolio uh, of work um, and they asked us to provide support to them to develop their multi-sectoral nutrition strategy uh, as an as an organisation. Uh, and as part of that work, we engaged with a wide range of uh, stakeholders and came into contact with Karima from the Sun Yemen Secretariat and obviously, we developed our understanding of the existing multi-sectoral nutrition action plan in Yemen and the role being played by the secretariat in convening and facilitating and supporting different stakeholders in relation to that. And we began having conversations with you, Karima, didn't we? Um, and we had numerous in-depth conversations with you but also with others Uh, and Karima you can add to this story uh, about how N4D became uh, engaged in, in working with you um, but you asked if we could uh, provide some technical support to, to to work with yourselves in the secretariat and help operationalize the multi-sectoral nutrition action plan uh, and one of the key things we did was was really have a lot of in-depth conversations with yourself and with others to really understand the situation in Yemen and then it was only really in the middle of last year when we met with you face to face in Amman in Jordan in August that we really began to kind of scale up our our support and we had some very good discussions with you uh, but also with various UN actors the resident coordinator resident coordinator's office in Amman for Yemen uh, and with various donor agencies and and UN agencies, um, when we really began to discuss what the roadmap could be for operationalizing the Yemen multisectoral nutrition action plan. So that's perhaps a longer uh, <laughs> introduction to the way in which we became engaged. Um, Karima, do you, do you want to just add anything briefly to, to that beginning of the story about our working relationship?
3: Yes, of course. Um, actually, I, I still remember the first meeting that we had with uh, the teams from um, BFD. And I noticed um, how much N4D team is supporting and serious about providing the the support to this national NGO. And uh, I think from our first deep discussions, I noticed that you grasp what the core problem within the country. It is not on um, the role of one actor or, you know, one part of the stakeholders who are responsible for providing nutrition interventions in the country, but it is more about more collaborative work, about more strategic interventions and planning. And um, I I was glad at that time because we were uh, struggling with convincing partners from the UN and from the donors to listen to us as um, we're coming from government and um, even at that time by 2021, um very, very few partners gave us the opportunity to listen and also to work with us. So um I thought at that time I I feel like you know it is an opportunity to have international team in, on back of the Sun Secretariat who can help us to get these entry points to our main uh, partners, because we were, as you know, all of you know this, we were struggling with um, connecting to the decision makers um, and the decision-making level in, um, in in UN and donors, and sticking with um, the um, managers was a huge challenge for us because they they can't be flexible because they they have an agenda and people that we need to uh, communicate with at that time uh, are those who can change the agenda and can prioritize work with some secretariat. So thank you.
0: Thank you, Karima. And I love it that you've jumped straight in uh, at the sharp end, really, of the conversation and the uh, Purpose of these podcasts, which is to really talk about the key political factors that enable or hinder progress in a country like Yemen. But before we deep dive into some of those political economy issues, if you like, I wonder if you could just tell our listeners where are you speaking from? Because last time I heard, I think you're in Amman, but you could be back in Yemen. But perhaps also just say a little bit about yourself, you know, where you grew up. What's been your journey to be such an influential, and important person for nutrition in Yemen? I mean, we view you in N4D as a leader for nutrition in Yemen. How did you get to be planning and liaison specialist? How did you end up as the executive committee member of the Sun movement and indeed working so closely on the food systems as a convening Role as well. So, I think our listeners would really keen to hear a little bit about your backstory. Over to you.
3: (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Actually, I think I have a very interesting story, by the way. And uh, it is a long story. I will try to make it short, uh, however. So, um, you know, I I grew up in a conservative society where girls are only good for marriage and housework. Um, But my father and my mother, we were. They were different and had sufficient awareness of the importance of education. Um, therefore, my sisters were the first girls uh, to enroll in university uh, education in our village. My father uh, told us for several times, you know, just recalling the the pa- the, the story from the past that his friends and those who were close to him they tried to convince him um, that girls in entering the university is a big mistake my uh, father and also my mother um insisted on this um, and gave us the the support to continue um our study journey to the university uh we were um diligent uh, girls we were um always, you know um excellent and um um you know excelled in school um and they they were always proud of us and you know all of us, I mean girls and boys in our family um but unfortunately uh, this didn't protect us from experiencing the early marriage. So um, in our society, girls get married before the age of um, 18. In fact, um, the experience of early marriage for for me, um, it wasn't good, and it was frustrating and against my ambitions, dreams, and expectations. So I went through a period of brokenness. Um, That changed me from a girl dreaming of entering medical college to give up and stay at home. I chose to study English language in college because I I thought... Um, The English language is something that I can benefit from while staying at home. Um, And, you know, it is better than studying something and then staying at home doing nothing with this major. And after um, college, I um, indeed stayed at home for almost five years without working. And after 10 years of marriage and at the age of 25, I decided to get a divorce. Um, two years of quarrels and, you know, problems, I obtained the divorce. And um, I felt like, okay, for the first time in my life, I felt liberated from a major nightmare in my life. I started my business trip I, um, I I thought that I, I need to study master's degree. I went to the university um, and there they asked me to um, teach actually in uh, in the university and to support them in, you know, in faculty of engineering. So I worked for the University of Sana'a for two years. At the same time, I run family business. It, it, it was a preschool. And also volunteered to work with one of the civil society organizations. Um, And in uh, 2012, I got my first job within Ministry of Planning and International Cooperation. And from here, I started my journey with development and uh, understanding this landscape, huge landscape. So um, I I worked from there till the the time of the crisis as the director of bilateral cooperation with the European Union, and we worked at a very higher level. Um, You know, we worked with the the donor conference for for Yemen for several times. And um, I think, you know, I, I can stop here for any questions, then we can continue for, you know, to, uh, to answer the rest of the questions
0: thank you karima do you know i felt so moved listening to you that really <laughs> moving and i just it's so impressive that you found your way out of what you called your nightmare to what you've been doing these past years within mopic within the ministry of planning in your various roles i think it would be perhaps good to perhaps hand over to Jeremy, who's been quietly listening, um, to move the conversation on to perhaps more around what's happening, Jeremy, in Yemen, uh, in terms of the nutrition situation. So would Mm. you like to kick off on that with Karima? Sure.
1: Thanks, Karima. Karima, that's some journey and thanks for being so open. I'm sure many of our listeners will find that really fascinating and enlightening. I I suppose uh, Just to to get a bit of background about Yemen from you, Um, we've always been aware, I think, that Yemen has uh, suffered very high rates of malnutrition, um, even before the conflict um, had a lot of nutrition challenges. Um, Perhaps you could just say, give us a, a few facts and figures, the ones that you have at your fingertips. and. Uh, uh, about Yemen's nutrition challenges pre-conflict and post-conflict and and maybe uh, draw some links between the conflict and how how that has impacted nutrition.
3: Yeah, thank you so much. Actually, uh, I think, as you said, Yemen um, has been struggling for a long time. Um, um, I don't think that we have a stable country for a long time. Every time we have a conflict, um, a civil conflict here or there within the country, but not, um, you know, this um, this size of conflict that we are experiencing right now, uh, because, you know, it is. this is what we believe as Yemeni people, that it is a proxy war that brought, you, you know, the regional and international powers in it. But uh, for a long time and maybe for since the the revolution in um, um in 1960s um Yemen always been has been in in this kind of conflict so um you know some of the statistics um, tell us that between 2002 and 2012 and this was just pre the conflict um about 19% of the population uh, were living blew the national poverty line while the statistics of 2017 um, this uh, number deteriorated into 80 uh, percent and you can see the huge difference between these two numbers and, um, you know, all this started actually in 2011 as part of the the Arab Spring that, you know, was there in, in the whole region. Um, and, um, you know, for the humanitarian situation, it's not something new in the country. Um, it was actually 2010 when OCHA started um, developing this uh, humanitarian response plan in the country. And they have associated funding appeal yearly for the uh, the HRP. They have, um, you know, active clusters. And one of them, for example, was the nutrition cluster. So it's been there even five years, really, the conflict. So that's why we say that the humanitarian context in, in Yemen is not new. It's not something that we we need to keep... Um, scaling up the humanitarian uh, context. We need, I think, to go back to 2010 when we have both structures, the development and the humanitarian, and also to learn from that experience how these clusters were, you know, working and uh, the mechanisms of coordination. And for the nutrition, um, I think it's uh, and this is one of the um, the challenges that donors are talking about, that we have almost the same indicators um, for malnutrition in Yemen. So in, in, you know, according to the HDS uh, in 2013, we all we have 16 um, percent of children under the age of five. Uh, who were wasted, and five percent were severely wasted, and also forty-six percent of um, Yemeni children uh, under the age of five also were stunted. These numbers haven't changed, and this this is one of the big questions or the question marks um, around the interventions in Yemen. Why they didn't do any breakthroughs? Why we 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 still talking about the same? rates, the same numbers. And um, I think it is, it's not clear because it is about the uh, the, the information system that we're not sure of these numbers, um, are they the same or, you know, they have changed or whatever. So, um, you know, the, um, the situation, the, the challenges that Yemeni yeah, people were facing uh, is a long story. So it is everywhere in all the sectors. But the the thing that we need to understand is they were there, always have been there. So it's not a reason to continue on what we're doing right now, but it is a reason that we need to innovative approaches and also for more strategic and development approaches. That's so interesting.
0: Go ahead, Jeremy.
1: Well, I was just going to sort of summarise what I took as a main point from there, Karima, which is that you've had HRPs every year since 2010. Uh, Nothing has improved. If anything, it's got worse. Uh, I guess the the, uh, uh, insinuation or inferences that... uh, things have to change. There must be a different way of doing business, but we'll come to that, I'm sure.
0: Can I just jump in just with our listeners in mind and just because we're using some acronyms that for some people it may not be obvious what they are. So when Karima refers to OCHA, she's talking about the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. And when she's talking about HRPs, and in fact, Jeremy just mentioned HRPs, these are the humanitarian response plans that the UN system puts into place to deliver different support across different sectors in a country deemed to have a crisis. So that's just for listeners who aren't immersed in the humanitarian uh, speak, if you like, and it is a speak. There's lots of acronyms. So every time an acronym comes up, we'll try and make sure we cover that for our listeners so that they're not lost in the conversation. But that's such an interesting uh, perspective that you've just given us, Karim, and it almost brings us, indeed, to the question that pops into my mind, which is that, given what you've just said, what is it that you and your colleagues are trying to achieve as the Sun movement in Yemen? You just talked about we need to evolve and innovate and not be doing the same thing we've been doing year after year over so many years beyond, you know, a decade more than. So maybe for our listeners, you could talk us through what, given that context you've just provided, what you're trying to achieve and how are you going about the realisation of those achievements? the hope for those achievements so that the future of Yemen isn't the same stubbornly high rates of child malnutrition and maternal for that matter and other members of the population so Karima perhaps you could just say a little bit about that for us
3: yes actually you know um, Yemen joined the sun movement back in 2012 And it was because of these numbers. It it is because of the observations from um, the international community. They noticed that Yemen um, actually needs this kind of support and interventions to scale up the interventions for nutrition from different perspectives. It's not only humanitarian. I think this was one of the reasons we already have uh, the uh, nutrition cluster, but I think the sun movement is something more development. So, um, you know, asking Yemen to join the sun movement, it was because uh, there is um, a chance for Yemen to have multi-sectoral, multi-stakeholder approach within the country. So it was an opportunity for MOPIC or Ministry of Planning and International Cooperation to establish the first uh, multi-sectoral nutrition action plan that um, mainly focuses on uh, health sector, agriculture, fisheries, education, social protection um, water and environment um, in one plan you, you know i think the, the multisectoral plan is something that we can we can in, ensure it serves people from both sides it saves life, lives and also ensure development and i think that if what is the main goal of the sun it is to save lives but It is saving lives within an approach that not only um, ensuring the minimum uh, level of working, but to go beyond this to the achieving more strategic goals and also to uh, address the underlying causes of malnutrition. So it's you know it is just instead of pulling out the dead children from the river, it is to go to the cause of this uh, problem and start resolving these um, challenges and saving people and saving the country and ensuring the prosperity of people. It is through the sustainability interventions, strengthening the national system to ensure the public services delivery, ensuring the efficiency and effectiveness of fund. So I think this is something about what we want to achieve and how, how it means that we need more collaborative work between all the stakeholders from the government, from the national NGOs, from donors, and also from the the UN. Um, And the main reason it's yes, to save lives, but it is more to ensure sustainability and development in the the country.
0: Thank you, Karima. That's very, very succinct, actually, and very clear. Um, You obviously have a very solid view as to where Yemen needs to be heading and the potential if there is greater collaboration across different stakeholders in Yemen. Chris, do you want to jump in at this point?
2: Yes, thanks. Um, Karima, as Carmel said, you've outlined very clearly and succinctly some of the things that you think need to be done differently and the different Uh, ways of working that are needed and for which there are opportunities, even in, in the very difficult, complex situation that Yemen finds itself in. So the importance of not only treating malnutrition and meeting people's very immediate needs, but also addressing the underlying causes and, and preventing malnutrition and other humanitarian needs as well. And and the importance of working with local actors and strengthening local and national institutions and systems, and, and in order to do those things, the need for the range of different actors to work together under national leadership, um, actors from the development community and the humanitarian and peace building communities working together towards those kind of common common goals. But, you know, I think people outside of Yemen, the general public, but, but also people that we talk to who are working on Yemen, often talk about the challenges, the difficulties, the The political divisions in the country, the fragmented uh, institutions, the the conflict, the security situation, the difficulties in accessing uh, vulnerable populations and sometimes concerns that resources are not used in the way that they're intended, that they're not actually allocated or distributed according to to where the needs are, the political interferences sometimes in in the allocation and use of of resources. So often we hear this kind of narrative um, about how difficult the situation is and how we need to, you know, we need to focus on saving lives, which is obviously critically important. But in the conversations we've had with you, you've talked a lot about The opportunities that there are even in this very difficult situation to be adopting longer term approaches, um, to be supporting people's livelihoods. You've talked about how resilient uh, the Yemeni people are and how they've adapted to the situation, the conflict as it has evolved, and there's a need to support them in their own coping initiatives. So maybe you can just tell us a bit more um, and tell our listeners, what are are the opportunities that in a way the international community should be supporting? where are the local actors and, and the local um, institutions, subnationally but also nationally, that the international community can be trusting and working with? We heard from Habib in our last podcast about often, you know, th- th- there's not sufficient understanding of the local context and trust of local actors, but it's clear to us. There are so many opportunities for working with local actors and turning commitments to localization into reality. So please tell us, give us an alternative narrative uh, for Yemen that everybody should be listening to uh, and responding to.
3: Yeah, actually, let me, you know, emphasize on something that I don't feel um, the the picture that people are describing Yemen is a fear, you know, fear. Um, and um, just, to, you know, picture that they're trying to depict on um, about Yemen. I don't feel this is the, um, this is what uh, Yemeni people deserve, you know. So, um, and it, it also reflects ignorance about the history of Yemen. All these challenges that they're talking about, even the ones regarding the security situation, they are very old stories in Yemen. As I told you, Yemen have been never very stable. So um, security issues have been always there, but it is in a very, you know, limited situations and places. So it's not all over the country. And um, people who who are living in the country, they can tell um, uh, and can see also these opportunities. Well, I, let me tell you just this a very, you know um, very snapshot uh, about the the good picture of Yemen. So it is a country that um, characterized by geographical climate and cultural diversity. It is very beautiful country, and it is distinguished um, um with culture and historical uh, heritage that makes um, this country full of opportunities. Wherever you you want to to do something, you will find um, ways of um, working and huge opportunities. So it is a place for development. It's not a place, it shouldn't be a place where people are poor and poverty rates are high it shouldn't be this way we have a long coastal um uh, you know areas it's like 2500 kilometers uh, with the rich fishing grounds very distinguished ones we have amazing agriculture potential um young population that is an opportunity not a challenge um, you know, having 30 million people or this um, number of population, from my point of view, is an opportunity. You know, it is it helps to move the economic um, situation in in the country. And uh, speaking of success stories, there are a lot. Um, if we're talking about the agricultural sector, so we have growing. Um, you know, coffee is one of the the best stories that we're you know we're having around the country in many examples. We have the the honey productions. We have um, you know, even increasing the um the local production from local grains and wheat and other agricultural productions. Um Yemen is self-sufficient for fruit and vegetables. And we we are um food insecure on one hand. and you can imagine that we, on the other hand, have one of the largest rate of food waste and uh, and and loss that makes it an opportunity for. Food industry and food safety and and all these um, interventions for livelihood, for women, for farmers, for SMEs along along the uh, value chain of agriculture and food system also. So, yeah, I think even in fishery sector that they're now facing the most challenging situation because of the conflict um, in the waters. And um, you know, in the the, the ports of the uh, the ports of Yemen, but still we have one of the most successful stories about aquaponics. That it, now in Sanaa it is not, you know, a coastal area, but we have fishes that produced, uh, you know, from the this kind of um, uh, interventions. So. I think one of the most important stories is the Sun Secretariat itself, that we are trying to bridge the national institution fragmentation in the country. We're trying to um, save these institutions from deepening the fragmentation and providing this platform for all the stakeholders. So the existence of the Sun Secretariat itself is an opportunity to hear from the other, um, you know, sectors about their opportunities and about their success stories. And um, I we have many from the, the line ministries, um, more, uh, you, you know, more opportunities, uh more um you know um potential that could help um to reduce the 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 live the the um you know the reduced income that we are facing right now so i think it is something that um uh, it worth exploring with the um with the public um institutions and to figure out about these things. Because those people, they're the experts in the sectors. So I think the the most important, one of the most important opportunities is also listening to the national experts about what we can do in this very rich and diverse country.
0: I love that note, Um, that optimistic note, Karima, because as Chris said just a few moments ago often it is so doom and gloom for Yemen that's not to in any way suggest Yemen doesn't have problems I mean we've talked right at the beginning of this podcast about the very high rates of malnutrition but it's really hard isn't it to get the more positive stories out Hmm. there
1: Um, yeah I was was, going to say and, and it's so interesting Karima I mean we uh, had many conversations like this in the past, and I, I was just thinking that you know you you very interestingly talked about how the security excuse, if you like, is often overplayed by international actors as as a as, as a reason why things can't happen, why there can't be more development. You talked about how how rich Yemen is in terms of its human resources and its natural resources. uh, You've you've acknowledged that international actors um, have found it hard to work across fragmented national institutions, but the Sun movement is uh, going some way to addressing that. I guess a question I have is why do you think with your exposure to so many international actors, why do you think the international system is still finding it so difficult to work, to think longer term, uh, to 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 use the national skills and knowledge that you referred to in, in the last bit of of what you said? Um, what what do you see as as the factors that are preventing that kind of progress?
3: Yeah, actually, you know, franking speakly, it is because of the politics. So politicizing the the work in Yemen is the main cause. Um, One of the examples, and I think one of the most challenging um, reason for this is the fragmentation of the government. And you can't you can just, you know, look at the situation where the recognized government uh, controls 70% of the land where almost 25% of the population, while the, um, the, uh, um, the de facto authority that it's not recognized by the international community and that, as they say always, they can't work with is on the 25 land, but on the other hand, it's like you know 70 percent uh, um or 75 percent of the population. So th- this is one of the the challenges um that donors and the international community keep talking about. It is um po- you know politicizing um the the interventions and the work with the actors. Especially the public institutions. Yemen is, um, you know, under this um, this seventh chapter of the UN, uh, where they have to adhere to some rules. And I think, unless we address this these reasons. Uh, we will continue, you know, facing the same difficulties and the same challenges because you can imagine that those people who are managing the interventions and the programs in Yemen, they're just implementing, you know, so they're not decision make, make, makers, they're not politicians. They can't change what the, you know, let's say the uh, the orders, they can't change them. So they just follow what they have to do. They can't, you know, take a step in, for example, working with the uh, national institutions or the line ministries directly. They have to work through the UN and there are other, you know, aspects for this. So I think this is the main reason is politicizing um, the, the, the work in Yemen. It is more about the fragmentation of the government um, it's more about. Um, the, um, the regional and international interests and um, political cards, different mm. political cards. So I think this mm. is the main reason and keep uh, avoiding um, resolving these problems will, uh, will, you know, will keep us um, like, you know, working more and more on the wrong direction. And sometimes I think it is. It takes time. Maybe we can't change it immediately, but I think convincing the international community to depoliticize work um, will continue. Will will work eventually. I mean, um, it's been there for the Sun Secretariat itself because it was. It is based in Sanaa, and it is. You know, in one of the. Um, under, it sounds like under Ansar Allah, um you know, government, which is the de facto authority. So we face this kind of uh, challenge, but we managed to convince the um, recognized government and the partners from the international community and the UN that we need to depoliticize working with us and also to to work. And I think it um, we succeeded to some extent. So I think this is one of the examples that we need to continue advocating for de-politicizing development interventions in the country. We need to find ways of working, even with, you know, de facto authorities. It is for people. It's not for politicians. So we need to keep working on these aspects. And this is the, the, you know, the largest uh, challenge that we are facing Development fund cannot be there unless we um, find ways of working that depend on um, less um, politics and more development for people.
2: Thanks, Karima. And if I can just come in and follow up on that, you talk about the importance of um, international actors depoliticizing uh, the support. And when I've heard you talk about this before, you've also gone on to say um, there's a need to work at the technical level with politi- uh, public uh, institutions. Uh, maybe that is happening perhaps a bit more at a sub national level in, in Yemen, but also you talk about the opportunity to do that at the national uh, level as well. So Maybe you can just go into a bit more detail about what depoliticizing the support looks like in practice. What, what does working um, at a technical level look like, look like and mean in practice? Could you say more about that for, for our listeners?
3: Yes, I think um, the the shortest description is the nexus. You know, the humanitarian development peace nexus is the entry point for depoliticizing the the work um, in, in in such context. So, at working at the technical level, it means that we need to focus on service delivery, how to improve um, people's lives, and how to support the basic surface delivery uh, within the country um, regardless the you know the political level so um, it's more this is this is what the donors want eventually they they need to see improvement so how we will do this if we're not working through the public institutions and the public services I don't think that you know humanitarian actions like food baskets and distributing of seeds or all these things will eventually lead to development it is it is the wrong approach uh, um, if you have a purpose you need to have the right um, approach so the the approach that we think is good is the system approach uh, the you know, the nexus approach that um put the Um, national leadership in the heart of all the actions. Um, I think what we have done and you were part of it, the the Sun National Gathering is one of these examples. We brought technical levels um, and experts from both sides of government to discuss the the country um, challenges and opportunities and the way forward. This is what we need actually. It is to work with the uh, public institutions and to prepare for the peace uh, phase from now. It is now where we need to work for peace. It's if we just sign the the peace agreement, believe me, we will find ourselves um, in front of uh, a huge cost of fragmented institutions and also fragmented policies and interventions. So I think we need to work and to avoid this fragmentation from now. We need to um, support the sustainability and resilience, not only of the people, but also of the institutions, the public institutions. I think people's um, lives and services depends on these you know, institutions. So it's good. This is what we hear from everyone. It is about um, resilience, people's resilience, and the sustainability of the interventions, but it is at the community level. What we think what will resolve the problem and will save all of us and make um, what we you know um, a game changer in, in Yemen, is the resilience and sustainability of the public institutions.
0: It makes so much sense uh, listening to Karima that, of course, that's got to be a major focus because as Yemen finds more ways to peace and we get away from the humanitarian footing, the strength and coherence of those institutions is going to determine the future of services and support to local populations so that makes total sense and um, it's so interesting to sort of hear that spelt out so clearly i'm aware that we're um probably coming close to the end of our time on this podcast but what i wanted to do was just circle back to you on a more personal level karima And just ask you, I can hear so much passion in your voice and I think our listeners will have been so inspired by your own personal story that you recounted so openly and movingly at the beginning of the podcast, as well as all the work you have been doing and are invested in now in Yemen. And you know, Mopik's lucky to have you. (laughs) Uh, we're all lucky to have you. The sun movement is lucky to have you. But what I wonder is how are you going to sustain this level of commitment and motivation, Karima? I mean, do you worry that you will burn out, tire out, or are you feeling that progress is being made and you can see the fruits of your efforts? And does that keep you going? So perhaps we could just end with you reflecting on this all-important continued motivation uh, that drives you and the incredible work that you're doing in Yemen.
3: Yeah, thank you for this question, because you reminded me of a very short story that happened back in 2013, (laughs) <laughs> and actually, I visited Brussels at that time. I met one of the European um, Union officials um, because I was the director of bilateral cooperation with the European Union. And I think he, he felt this enthusiasm in my voice and uh, the positiveness. And uh, he smiled at me and he said, really, Karima, I want to see you in 10 years. So I think that I haven't lost this enthusiasm, luckily Alhamdulillah I didn't, (laughs) and I don't feel that it is is easy for me to lose this um, motivation, I think it is part of me, part of my personality. Um, The reason for keeping me, you know, worthless, it is because I want to give more and more. So I don't think that if I don't feel uh, rewarded will, you know, uh, burn me out. I don't think so. So I think I will continue, um, you know, working for the good of people. Um, Maybe I I can't, you know, continue forever in the Sun Secretariat. But wherever I go, I will, you know, keep the same enthusiasm and supporting uh, the future of Yemeni children.
0: Thank you, Karima.
1: So normally, Carmel Dolan would uh, summarize at the end of any podcast for us, uh, some of the main points that um, come out from that podcast, but on this occasion, uh, Carmel couldn't be with us today uh, as her daughter um, uh, was well, is getting married, or uh, some very lame excuse like that. So uh, it's uh, it's left to Chris and Chris and I to summarise um, as best we can. So Chris, if it's okay with you, I'll just run through a few points and then and then you can chip in. Okay, sounds good. So uh, it was a, I, I thought it was a great uh, great interview if you like uh, with Karima. Um, incredibly powerful opening from her documenting her sort of personal early adulthood and journey uh, professionally to ensure that she could. Uh, if you like, live a more authentic and sort of authentic life and more congruent with her hopes and beliefs. It was very moving and empowering. It was. Um, And then uh, Karima sort of pointed out, didn't she, that uh, Yemen has suffered high levels of malnutrition before the war, actually. um, And that the situation really has not improved for many years in spite of the annual humanitarian programming since, I think, 2010, she said, the OCHA got involved um, in Yemen. Um, And to some extent, that lack of improvement triggered the international community uh, to identify the need for a Sun movement in Yemen which uh, Yemen joined in 2012, realising that something different had to be done to tackle its complex nutritional problems. But in spite of that, Karim seemed to be saying that development partners have not really been able to support Yemen in a way that would would help realise the multi-sector nutrition plan that came out of the Sun Movement affiliation. Um, and that that plan really needed government sectors to be strengthened and and the need to create resilient government systems which could de- deliver services. She also said, I thought and this was really fascinating, that the development partner narrative uh, for Yemen has, has remained the same for many years, one of insecurity preventing um More development type resilience building work, political issues as a result of two governments and the resulting institutional fragmentation, resource leakage, uh, which I guess is a euphemism for corruption in inverted commas, and political interference. Um, And Karim has painted a very different narrative, really, one where Yemen has so much opportunity for development. For development, um, a massive coastline, a young population, a unique coffee and honey, and aquaphonic capacity, and of course the Sun Secretariat, bridging uh, the divide between the de facto government um, and uh, the uh, the other government, the two governments. Also, the fact that sectors have huge expertise within government, and and her really maintaining that this development partner narrative is therefore not accord with the reality she knows and then we asked Harima why she thought international partners maintain this kind of narrative and have failed to move to a more development footing within Yemen to to, to help prevent malnutrition rather than just try and cure it when the problem or treat it when the problem occurs and she was clear wasn't she that in her mind there is an overly political lens of the international system which maintains and and makes worse the institutional fragmentation and that really they have to depoliticize their approach. Um, They have to work more apolitically at a technical level with national institutions and that the humanitarian and development nexus perhaps offers the, the perfect opportunity for this. And this really would necessitate working through national institutions under national leadership. And she cited the recent Sun Gathering, which brought together technical experts from North and South within government and amongst partners as a great example of this type of process. So a question for me, Chris, is, is what is it at donor and UN level that rarely stops this way of working? are there legal and or bureaucratic frameworks and processes that prevent the kind of working approach that Karima believes should and is possible
2: as you say Jeremy it was um a powerful uh, powerful messages coming from from Karima it was a great conversation with her as always and it was also a great follow on from our previous podcast episode with habib from the g7 plus secretariat Mm. who expressed concern that too often the international community doesn't sufficiently trust local actors um whereas karima but also the rest of the sun yemen secretariat team headed by abdul karim is clear from our working with them uh, but also from that conversation, how powerfully they demonstrate how vital it is to identify and work with local and national entities and organisations who are, of course, committed to improving the lives of of all people in their countries and, and providing leadership, but also who can navigate the political landscape in ways which international actors Often find difficult. Um, so, from my perspective, it's as Karima was saying, um it's clearly time to be changing the narrative uh, about Yemen and finding different and more sustainable ways of working, even when the political context remains so complex and and so uncertain. And there are clearly opportunities to be doing that, strengthening, uh, helping local national actors strengthen their their capacities uh, and the provision of basic services in different sectors. Um, but as you said, what's, what's the key question, the key constraint to doing that, to working differently and um, the challenge of engaging with and strengthening national and local institutions in contexts where relationships between international the international community and political authorities that that's not a unique situation for, for Yemen and uh, the, this this dilemma and the need to get this balance right in the level of engagement is highlighted in um, in an excellent paper by Chatham House that was published yeah. in in April this year it was called "Aid Strategies in Politically Estranged Settings."
0: Hmm.
2: We can put we can put a link to this uh, paper in the episode notes, um, hmm. so hmm. listeners can follow up and read it. And I'd really recommend that that they do hmm. because it it sets out a menu of um, modalities, um, evidence based modalities for the delivery and oversight of development assistance in these types of contexts. And it really emphasises the importance of strong political economy analysis to inform decision making. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it it draws on examples from a range of different countries, including Yemen and Afghanistan and and others. But it really demonstrates how much more can and, and needs to be done. To promote more sustainable solutions alongside the provision of vital life-saving humanitarian assistance. So it's definitely worth worth a read, Jeremy.
1: Yes, I mean, I thanks thanks for sending that to, to me, Chris. I read it. Um, and I thought first of all, I thought the title was brilliant, estranged context. I think that says it all. Um, mm-hmm. but I also I, I thought it was fascinating how the number of these contexts, Uh, seems to be growing Um, Mm -hmm. um, and therefore this has to be addressed. It's no longer good enough to uh, just wash our hands of these strange contexts and say we can't work within them other than through humanitarian response. So very important, as you say, a very important paper. Okay, well I I think we've probably said enough about Uh, podcast and just to flag the next one which uh, I believe is with Sean Baker from uh, XXUSAid is that correct?
2: That's correct the former chief nutritionist from USAID and um, now working uh, with Helen Keller International and a well-known name in the in the Mm. world of nutrition so we're going to be recording uh, the podcast with him next week so very much looking forward to that of course it'll be interesting to hear his reflections on on the episode so far and some of the issues emerging from the discussions with habib and also with karima um but thinking about those from a at least a former donor perspective but also in his current current role
1: yeah great well look forward to that chris okay Okay. thanks a lot jeremy speak to you soon yeah thanks a lot chris bye for now